Okay, hello again. We are live on the Edlow Podcast. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. I am here with another very special guest. Hello, neighbor, Ned Telford. How, How are you? Doing? How you doing, Josh? I'm great. Great. So, uh, Ned Telford uh, wears many hats. Um, I've known him for about five years now. Uh, I, he lives right next door to me. He was the first person I met. Uh, I was looking through the house that I live in now in Folsom, California, and as I walk through, he's outside. I think you were fixing a basketball hoop for your grandkids or something like that. Yeah, we got I to was. Th- yeah. And we put it together wrong. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> and I remember uh, talking to you and saying that I was as a member of the church, and then you you said, "Why well, be your stake president?" And I was like, "Oh, that's not good." <laughs> and so. And so I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to live next to a stake president, but it's been a great experience. And um, and as I've gotten to know you, I've really enjoyed your story. And I find it kind of remarkable um, that uh, uh, your kind of journey, your faith journey um, from being a less active member virtually your whole life until your, your 20s. Right. And then and then, yeah. then moving on. So so let's let's start there. You know, where, where did you grow up? Um, tell me about your parents. Well, I was born in Salt Lake City. Uh, my parents moved out here when I was two years old, so I have no memory, of course, of living in Salt Lake. And they moved to the Sacramento area. Um, my dad uh, never graduated from high school. He was a smart guy, uh, but in his generation, he was born in 1916. Um, and he grew up pretty poor, so the idea of him going to college wasn't really in the, in the mix for where he was and where he was. But he ended up, when he was out here, he was in management for a trucking company, a nationwide trucking company that worked out of Salt Lake City called IML Freight, which has since gone under. Hmm. And so he was the terminal manager for their terminal here in the Sacramento area. Uh, my mom, for the most part, was a stay-at-home mom until I got into high school. And then she worked for... I, t- I take it back. When we were younger, she worked as a buyer for a department store, which is, again has gone out of business, called Rhodes Department Store. Hmm. And she was a buyer for uh, uh, young girls in terms of buying their clothing. And then when they went out of business, uh, she went to work for the state of California and worked there, kind of working her way up into management positions and retired from that. Both my parents are deceased, and they were good parents. Uh, yeah. Good there. And nothing to worry about there. Yeah. Well, and uh, tell me where you are in the birth order as far as brothers and sisters. I am the last of four. Uh, ah, the baby. I have, I have a sister who is 13. Yeah, that is such a benefit to be the baby. Your parents focus <laughs> on the older kids. And <laughs> yes. I, I apologize to my son, who's our oldest, that we had to practice on him. Yep. And so... Uh, I'm the youngest of four. I have an older sister who is 13 years older than me, who's passed away. I have an older brother who's 10 years older than me, uh, who was alive and well. And then there's eight years between the babies, and that's because my mom had five miscarriages between number three and number four. Wow. So then I've got a brother who's two years older than me, who's alive and well, and then me and the baby. And so by the time they got to me, they had basically figured out that nothing they could do as parents really made much difference. Kids just turned out as they were. And so (laughs) 
I was kind of left alone in a loving sort of way, in the sense that I always felt loved by my parents, but they weren't necessarily that much involved in my life as a, as a teenager growing up. I was kind of on my own, which I don't look back. I look back on it as a positive. How's that? Hmm. Interesting. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny what you said. I, I think the same thing. I, I, uh, I recently, uh, you know, Austin, my oldest, he, he looks at the way I, I treat Lincoln. He goes, you know, if I would have done that when I was that age, you would have done this and that. And I go, well, you know, we sorry we screwed you up. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I'll pay for your therapy later, you know. <laughs> so. It's just part of being a parent, like my oldest uh justin who is now 47 years old so he was a thumb sucker and so that really bothered me when he was like four and five years old or not quite probably four years old sucking his thumb and so i worried about it talked to the dentist and we put him through a thumb sucking program that we paid through the nose to the dentist to put him through this thumb sucking program to get him off thumb sucking so then you go, and then my kids are spread out. There's uh, 17 years from the oldest to the youngest. So Kelsey, the youngest, she sucked her thumb. We could care less. We knew that it would come to her. <laughs> yeah, no right. for a, for a, an intervention by the dentist to put him put her through a thumb sucking program. I so, remember. I remember. I think it was um, Lexi. We were we were struggling a little bit. I you know I I struggled a little bit because. Uh, Potty training was so difficult, and uh, with her, I think it was Lexi. I can't remember which one it was, but I remember the best advice I ever got was they said uh, someone in my ward at the time said, "Listen, how many adults do you see walking around with diapers on? Like, <laughs> like, she'll she'll figure it out eventually, you know." And so, little patience. Yeah, so I grew up in Sacramento uh, from two years on. I uh, lived in the same house uh, from the time we moved there until uh, I got married. Um, and just went to high school and uh, wasn't much of an athlete, uh, but that's okay. And fun. Well, that's good. So um, tell me now, as far as your relationship to the church, um, how, how did that work out as you were going through your teenage years? Well, I think when my, you know, it's hard to know for sure. I think my mom was relatively active when they lived in Utah. I think my dad was probably completely inactive, but not really sure. But I know all through my life, he smoked and he drank and, and, and drank. And I'm sure he smoked from the time they got married up until later. And so once they got out to Utah or out of Utah to Sacramento, they just kind of drifted away from the church. And so we didn't go to church. Um, I have an older sister who had, you know, established a testimony and a, and a love for the church. And so she continued to go to church on her own uh, all the time when I was growing up, but we didn't really, you know, we didn't go. And so I was baptized uh, when I was eight years old, but other than going back to Utah uh, to visit relatives, uh, to go to church, uh, we never went to church, and so uh, I was never involved in the Iranian priesthood program. Never involved in scouts. Never held any priesthood until I was, like you say, in my twenties and married. Mm. So I, I was familiar that there was something called the Book of Mormon, but I'd never read a word of it. Mm. Um, I, I guess I was familiar that there was the Word of Wisdom. Mm. Um, 
but obviously it didn't have a lot of impact because my parents were, or my, both my parents were not living the word of wisdom. And so it just wasn't, you know, it was what it was. And so when I first met my wife, um, and we'll kind of get into that a little later, but um, we never really talked about religion. And it seems scary to think that you get, you marry someone and you never talk about one of the most important things that will affect your life and your eternity. And yet you pick a, a spouse without even talking about that. But, and that gets back to kind of the tender mercies of the Lord who kind of, I think, watches over people who, because of their circumstances, um, kind of watches out for them and says, okay, we'll wait for Ned to come to a different point in his life and then, and then we'll intervene because we really can't do much now because he's not with us. Hmm. That's a good point. You know, it, it, a couple of things you said there are like my parents, uh, very similar situation. Uh, my dad, convert to the church, Jewish. And I remember my mom tells, tells me the story that uh, when she first started dating my dad, my grandfather, who was, I mean, he's got, he's got ancestry all the way back to the very beginning of the church. I mean, they are staunch, hardcore members. He voiced a little bit of concern. He said, well, you know, he's not a member of the church and he's not even, he's not even Christian. How are you going to work that out? And she said, oh, dad, it's not like I'm going to marry him. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then they get married. And uh, they'd had lots of conversations about that. And um, so, so tell me then, as far as uh, going through high school, what was your high school experience like? It was good. I had friends. Um, I felt like I fit in. Um, but, you know, kind of going back to the way I was raised is, is that, um, you know, once you got to be about 14 or 15 years old, you were on your own for money and everything else. Oh, interesting. Uh, and so, so I, you know, my first job, um, was McDonald's. I worked at McDonald's and that was so long ago that. When I first started working at McDonald's, only boys were allowed to work at McDonald's. It was oh, just wow. a male establishment. When, when I say make a comment like that to somebody your age, they go, come on, you got to be kidding me. No, it's exactly the way it was. And so, wow. um, and I always looked, not now, but as a kid growing up, I always looked younger than I was. Um, I matured later than I should have been. And so I somehow convinced the people at McDonald's I was 16 when I was only 15, which was a joke because I looked about 12. <laughs> and so I, 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 I fudged on my birthday by a year and got a job at McDonald's. And so I worked a lot uh, after school and doing all that. And, and I started getting that job when I was 15. So I'd saved up enough money uh, when I turned 16 to buy a car. Mm. And so, but because I had to have a car because my parents were not in the mix in terms of taking me to work or getting mm. me to school. That was completely my responsibility. Hmm. But I never felt, I never didn't resent that. That's just the way it was. And so, so I got this car and you can appreciate this. It was 19, let's see, at, at 16, that would have been 1969 when oh. I turned 16. And so I purchased the 1967 Mustang. Nice. Josh Mustang. And so... Yeah. <laughs> I had this nice little Mustang and, and that was good. Yeah. And so mostly I worked, um, 
uh, saved my money and did all that. And then once I got the car, then all the money I worked at went to fixing the car and putting bigger <laughs> tires on it and doing all sorts of stupid stuff that you do and sure, putting sure. gas in it. But gas was only 25 cents a gallon. Yeah. But working at McDonald's, I earned, you got to, you know, where's the drum roll? I earned a dollar and 25 cents an hour. Wow. Um, but it was a great experience because back then, you could have a tremendous amount of responsibility. So by the time I was 16, I was a shift manager, if you can imagine that. Yeah. And so I'd be responsible for about 15, you know, men working, you know, men, boys working on the shift, um, counting the money, taking it to the bank, making orders for how many burgers and buns that we needed to have in the next couple of days and doing the inventory. And, and I got to watch how a business is run. And it was, it was a great experience for me. Didn't make a lot of money at it, but it was a great experience. Enough to keep up a, a Mustang though. So that's good. Yeah. yeah. So um, now you, you get to college. Where did you go to college? I started out right after high school. I went to uh, Sacramento City College um, because it just seemed like the thing to do because I wasn't really that into, I wasn't really thinking, how's that? Uh, I just thought, well, I, I guess I had to go to college. I was the first one in my family to go to college, even at that mm. point. Mm. And so I enrolled in Sac City College and did quite well. Um, and it kind of spurred me on and made a friend who was going to uh, Santa Clara University. And so I felt like I really wanted to go to a university. And so at the end of two years, I transferred to Cal Berkeley, which is where I graduated from. Nice. And then you eventually also end up at law school. Where did you go? To, did you go to Berkeley for law school as well? No, I went to law school here in Sacramento at McGeorge. Oh, okay. Same, oh, as, you. same as me. There you go. Yeah. Wow. How, where was it ranked when you were going there? Was it ranked? Yeah, well, no, it wasn't. I don't even know if they had rankings, but it wasn't. But it was interesting. McGeorge was, at that time, McGeorge had the reputation of, uh, a third of the class would be flunked out over the period of three years of the day program. Oh, yeah. So, so one third would be gone. Mm -hmm. uh, but for when I was there, uh, they had the highest bar percentage rate of any of the law schools in Sacramento or in California, including Bolt Hall and UC Davis and all those. Because literally, I used to think that the dean would flunk out anyone who thought he might pass or flunk the bar exam on the first time. <laughs> And so, so yeah, so it worked out fine. It, um, I got a good education. It prepared me to be a lawyer as much as any educated law school does, but. Uh, yeah. Law school that, doesn't prepare you to be a lawyer at all. No, <laughs> yeah. it wouldn't have been any different if I'd gone to Bolt Hall or any of the big name schools and it was yeah. good. Yeah, awesome. So now where in that process do you meet your wife and get married? Now, this is almost embarrassing to tell you this story. So okay. I met my wife uh, because we hired the first two females, girls, at the McDonald's store. Oh. She did not get hired, but we hired these two girls who were her friends. And so oh. she came in with them. I got introduced to her. I got enough nerve to ask her out for a date, and we did. And so we started dating. And I proposed to her while she was a senior in high school 
And so the last month of high school, she was wearing a, a, uh, an engagement ring. Wow. And then wow. married a year after that, we got married. And then I went off to, to Berkeley and we got married between my junior and senior year in, uh, at Berkeley. Wow. So how long did you date total? Well, probably about 18 months. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So, so by today's standards, that would probably be about right. You know, it's interesting because when you remember like my generation, I don't know if it was like this in the generation of, of people coming back from their missions back in the seventies, but you know, it's like, I came back and people were getting married in a month, two months, three months. You well, know what we, I mean? We were two, we were just kids. Yeah. I mean, we had to wait a year and a half to be even closer. <laughs> yeah. Karen was 19 and I was 20. How's that? Yeah. Wow. So, um, what was, were you, when you went to college, when did you start deciding you, you wanted to be a lawyer? Probably in my second year of college, I was looking around at something I thought that I would enjoy and mm -hmm. that I thought I'd be good at. And, and the interesting thing is, when you think about that is I had no idea. There are no lawyers in my family. Uh, I don't know what the idea that I picked being a lawyer because I thought I would enjoy it and I thought I'd be good at it was kind of nonsense in a way, but that's what I did. Um, and so I did that. And then by the time I got to Berkeley, I was focused on uh, doing that, uh, become, you know, uh, getting into law school. And so it was probably no different then than now it's very competitive to get into to, to law schools and so um, you know you try to get good grades so you get a decent score on the LSAT and and you know do the best you can and then I ended up got uh, admitted to two law schools uh, one was Hastings which was a little bit cheaper but it was in San Francisco one was obviously McGeorge in Sacramento a little bit more expensive but nothing compared to what it is today Mm. Um, and it was, you know, at home where I lived and where Karen was from. And so it was kind of an easy choice. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So now tell me, you know, you, so you essentially would be considered because you would be considered a less active member up until this point. And where your wife, she's what is she, where was her um, was she an active member of the church or was she not no, even she, a member yet? She was not a member of the church. Um, she grew up um, going to church as a, a young teen, like 13, 14 years old, a Methodist church. Her grandfather uh, was a Methodist minister and her great grandfather was a Methodist minister. Wow. And so, but the family that she grew up in was not really as a family going to church like what we would talk about in our mm -hmm. where everybody went together. Mm -hmm. uh, her parents were divorced, and so she was living with her stepdad. Uh, and her, her mom remarried her stepdad uh, when she was like five or six years old, pretty young. Mm. So, um, but by the time we met, she wasn't going to church at all. And as I said earlier, we didn't really have discussions about church. Mm. And I wasn't going to church, and this really didn't didn't really give much thought as to whether there was a God in it. He had a role in my life. It was just living life. Mm. So, um, where does uh, where does the church start coming into your life? So now Karen and I are living in married student housing at Berkeley. It's called Alden Village, 
And so she was going to school at Merritt Junior College. And so she read a couple of books. Um, one was Hal Lindsey's book, who's like a Christian author at the time. And so, and she was just doing this on her own without really discussing with me. I mean, and so she came to the conclusion that she wanted to know if Jesus Christ was real. And that, and, and if so, what would she, what did she need to do to establish a relationship with her, with him? And so she got to this point, and while she was in the library at Merritt, she offered a prayer in there and had a really, really spiritual experience, kind of like what you would call in an evangelical way a born-again experience. And so she came home and explained to me what had happened and said, we need to go find a church. Hmm. And so for the next month or so, we every weekend went to a different church. And after about a month, I then, and it, it's so silly when you say about this, I said, you know, I'm a Mormon. And we've <laughs> never had that conversation. I was baptized Mormon. And I've got a lot of cousins who've served missionaries for the the Mormon church, we would refer to it at that time. Why don't we ask them to come over? And so she goes, okay. And so somehow I got a hold of the missionaries. I don't know what I did. And within, you know, a day or so, I had two missionaries knocking on our little apartment door at Albany Village. Um, and so they started giving us the lessons. And so my non-member wife introduced me to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or reintroduced me. Wow, that's so that's so interesting. It's funny. I gotta so tell me, would you you often hear? I mean, I served a mission, and there were some uh, investigators that were just golden investigators, like they were just ready to go. Would you would you think you were one of those, or were you a tough one for the missionaries to crack? Oh, I was easy, and it wasn't that I was ready to go. I mean, you know, uh, you know, going to church and doing all this because I was newly married and I wanted to make my wife happy. Uh, <laughs> I had no interest in religion in my life. I just didn't feel like I needed it. Mm -hmm. And so that first, uh, that first time when the missionaries were there, uh, they obviously left us with a copy of the Book of Mormon and mm -hmm. gave us some stuff to read. Mm -hmm. uh, and I read the entire Book of Mormon over the weekend. Wow. What well, isn't that big of a wow? Put yourself in college. You would read a 500-page book over the weekend all the time. Sure, sure, but I mean, considering that you're in college and you're you're studying and you're doing all that, you you had time to re page a, read a 500 page book in between all that. Well, I'm not sure that I had the time, but it just captivated me, and so right. I started reading it, and I could not put it down. It's not like I I studied it; I just read it like a, like a novel, going from place to place, and it uh, it just changed my life. I mean in the sense that uh, once I had finished the Book of Mormon, I didn't have this great spiritual experience at the end where you pray and you get this great deal, but I came to know who I was as a child of God with an infinite and eternal potential. And I'd never thought about that before, but I'd come to realize that. And so I felt like I, I didn't need to make any changes in my life. I wasn't even 21, so I didn't drink, mm -hmm. um, and I didn't smoke, but I did drink coffee. And I remember going to make a cup of coffee afterwards and saying, well, I better not do this. Uh, <laughs> I, 
if we're going to start going to the church. And so we just started going to church at the Berkeley Ward and people were so kind to us. Uh, my hair was down to my shoulders, which fit right in. Not necessarily in church, but it fit right in with Berkeley. And uh, here's a funny one. So, so the missionaries, Karen didn't even own a dress. Mm. Um, and so the missionaries is we're getting ready, getting ready to go to the church, if you will. When they invite us to attend church, says, you know, you know, I maybe there was a question. I'm not really sure. You know, how should we dress? And so uh, they said, well, the you know the, the women you aren't normally wear a dress, and so. We had no money, which was typical of students at that time and today too. So Karen went out and bought a pattern and some some stuff and, and she knitted two dresses. So hmm. she'd go to church. Well, give an idea. The dresses were halter top dresses. So it was completely <laughs> bare in the back, no need for a bra. And so off she went <laughs> to church. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So, so you mentioned, you know, and I was going to ask you about that. You mentioned not a lot of life changes necessary for you. Um, uh, was the so that didn't sound like it was that hard of a transition for you? Well, it really wasn't. Um, you know, there was just a um, a realization that I talked about, and that I wanted to live up to the potential that I knew was in me. And so becoming a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, it wasn't big, that big of a sacrifice, but it, um, it was something that I wanted. Nobody was trying to force me into it. It was something I wanted more than anything. Yeah. And so it was easy to do. And Karen went along. I mean, you know, as we went through the discussions, which you did as a missionary, you know, she had questions, I had questions, but it was easy for me. She had questions we went through. And then eventually there was a challenge for her to be baptized. Um, you know, the bishop had been interviewing me, and so I was ordained a priest in the Iranian priesthood. And so I was able to baptize Karen. Mm. Uh, but on the morning of her baptism, one of her good friends, who was religious, uh, felt like that she was joining the Church of the Devil. And so she showed up at our little apartment in Berkeley with all the books and all the stuff with another friend to try and talk Karen out of being baptized. Mm. And it was in a loving way, it really was. She wasn't being mean. She was just trying to, in her mind, save Karen from making a big mistake. And so but Karen listened to that and said, no, um, I think that I've had enough spiritual experiences to let me know that I'm on the right path. And so I will be baptized. So she was. So tell me, do you, you know, you now looking back, I mean, you've done a lot within the church and you've been successful outside of the church. You have you have a bunch of kids now. Um, how do you think being a member of the church has affected uh, your life versus where you think you would be without it? You know, it's hard to know what you'd be without it. I can make some suppositions in the sense that being a member of the church has changed the focus of my life, mm -hmm. much less focused on myself and much more focused on other people. Mm. Now, keep in mind that one of the biggest faults that I have that I work on from time to time is to be less um, uh, self-absorbed and mm. more absorbed with other people. 
Mm. So that's one of the characteristics of Jesus Christ that I work on most. And so without the gospel of Jesus Christ in my life and without the example of Jesus Christ, I'd be a much more selfish person, which would have not worked well in many ways. It would not have worked well in terms of being a, a good husband. Um, I mean, one, before we got involved in the church, one of the thoughts I had was the worst thing that could happen to us at this time was for Karen to get pregnant. <laughs> okay. Right. So after we were involved in the church, um, we had kind of a spiritual experience together at a state conference where we came home and decided that maybe we should start a family. And that was in the first year of law school. Mm. And so... Uh, Probably the worst time that you could start a family. And so <laughs> there's a tearful experience that evening together as we flushed Karen's birth control uh, pills down the toilet yeah. uh, with tears running down her cheeks is, oh my goodness, what are we doing here? And so in the end, we had one child born during our, my, our second year of law school and one born two weeks late the day after I finished the bar exam. Wow. Oh man, that has to be, that had to have been stressful while you were going and taking the bar. Well, well, it was just, I suppose, I suppose it was, but I don't know, I guess, in some ways, the Lord has given me a sense of uh, easy to believe and to trust in Him, and that mm -hmm. this will all work out in the end. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, there was a bit of stress. There's far more stress for Karen than me uh, sure. because she had to take care of these kids, and I was busy in school and then busy in work and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so that's you know that changed my life. And in answer your question, it changed everything. In my regular prayers, I often if not often, if always, thank Heavenly Father for the gospel of Jesus Christ in my life. Because mm -hmm. it is a guiding light that keeps me pointed in the right direction. That doesn't mean I'm always right where I should be, but it keeps me on track and moves me back when I try to get off track, when life gets you off track. Mm -hmm. And getting off track can, can really create problems in your life. Yeah. So tell me what you mean by getting on track. What do you think that that means? Well, I, I guess getting on track is to recognize who you are, um, to try to figure out what God has planned for you, and to put aside some of the uh, put aside some of the the temptations that occur in life uh, that can get you off track. Um, you know, as a lawyer, you know, in you know, what you do, and you and I did the same thing on opposite sides of the deal, is you want to win, but win at what cost? Yeah. Uh, and so uh, that was always in my mind, is, is that uh, I'm not going to give up my eternal exaltation be, to win a, a lawsuit. I need to keep in, I need to stay on track and be honest and forthright in everything that I do and yeah. not and not do that. And in terms of where you spend your money and how you spend your money and what you do with it. I mean, I, you know, I did stupid things when I look back in terms of as soon as I'd made a partner, I had to go buy a Porsche. So right. that's very right. selfish. You know, that's the selfish part of me coming out and look at right. me and all that kind of stuff. But the Lord looks at it and goes, oh, he's young and stupid. I'll put up with it for a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I don't, I don't know anything about buying fancy cars. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, 
You know, it's funny you bring that up. The, you know, I remember my my boss, my mentor, Roger Dreyer, definitely not a member of the church, but he, he he's a he's a very good man. I remember we had a case. I had a case for uh, a, a guy. You know, I had carried it on, and we were about eight weeks from trial, and we had found out that, and this was a case of I me. Mean, we had done a million, one and a half million dollar demand, you know, on it, and going to go try it in Placer County. Found out that he wasn't being truthful uh, with us about what was going on, and I came down, and I sat down with him, and I go, I don't know what to do. I mean, this isn't—he's not being accurate, and uh, and he he told me he goes, fire him. He just said, fire him. And I go, it's a million dollar case. He goes, there'll be another one. It's fine. It's not worth your integrity as a person to do that. And, and uh, it really, it showed me that, you know, uh, there is more to life than, than winning these cases and making money. And, and you, you know, you have to be able to look yourself in the mirror. And he, and after that, he told me, he said, listen, you should never take a case that you're not comfortable, that you look at the person and say, I would not be comfortable sitting next to them for two weeks in trial. <laughs> and so um, it, was, it was a big, good life lesson. So Well, and, you know, Roger, I had more than a few cases with Roger, and that's exactly the way he was, and it's uh, easy to work with. Um, but, yeah, so that kind of stuff and, you know, helping you make decisions that have affected my life in terms of making sure that, you know, made the sacrifices to have children. You know, we have five children. Um, I, I would have never had five children uh, had we not uh, become involved in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or become involved with Jesus Christ. Um, and in terms of you know, in terms of the enjoyment of my children, you know, they're just, they're fun to be with. And I got a whole bunch of grandkids now and they're fun to be with. And so, yeah, it's, I'm seven years old and I can't believe that I'm seven years old, but, um, but I look back at the, you know, the key decision that has brought me the most happiness is becoming active in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, Sometimes people ask me about that. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in the church um, my whole life. I, I remember going to church pretty much weekly. But I don't think I necessarily had a, um, a strong conversion, probably more of a social conversion than anything, um, until one day, the, you, know, my, uh, the, you know, my best friend, who happened to be a female, who I hoped to one day... Um, you know, be married to said, I'm never going to marry anyone who doesn't go on a mission. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm going on a mission. And, uh, and that changed my life. And, and it's funny because when you, when you go all in, um, it really does put, put your life in the eternal perspective. I remember thinking to myself before I went on that mission, I'm just going to be a pro wrestler and tour the world and have a lot of fun and, and just wrestle and make some, make a bunch of money and be famous and, and just do all that. And I remember coming back from my mission and thinking to myself, okay, so what comes along with wrestling? Injuries, never seeing your kids, never seeing your family. And I said, that's, that's not what I want. And so um, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine not being around my kids all the time, yes. you know? And so it does. It helps you put things in a more eternal perspective, I think. And so. So, I mean, we all need that because... 
we're all a little bit selfish. Uh, it's part of being a natural man. And so you just, the world will cause you to be even more selfish if you listen to it mm-hmm. and going after the wrong things. And I mean, it's not like I've still gone after the wrong things from time to time. You know, it was important to me to make, uh, you know, a good living and doing all that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, I had other stuff that kind of slowed me down in terms of, not slowed me down, but was a check on that in terms of church callings that took up some of my time and trying to figure out the balance between work and church and home. Um, and that was a good exercise for me to keep me on a good path. Well, that's something I also wanted to talk to you about because, you know, you have a, a really cool conversion story and then you've, you know, we talked a little bit about it off air. You know, you, you didn't go on a mission. You didn't grow up in the church. You know, you're in your 20s when you, you come back and you've served in significant callings. You've been a bishop twice. You've been a stake president. How have you been able to find a balance between family, work, church callings, you know, it'd be very easy. I've been an elders quorum president. I've been in bishoprics. I've been on a high council. It could, it could consume your life if you let it. How how do you, how have you um, been able to balance those things? Well, you're assuming I did. (laughs) (laughs) True, true. Uh, I mean, you just, you, you just kind of, it's almost like, you're bouncing back and forth in terms of things. And that's part of life. Uh, you know, I look back on it now and it's just part of life. Uh, and so you just have to, you just have to recognize that there are things, you know, that there have to be there. You have to, you know, you've got a job and you've got to do enough. You've got to do enough there to, um, if you're a partner in a law firm to, uh, keep your partners happy. If you want to be a partner in the law firm to make the partners want to make you a partner mm-hmm. and to do all the stuff that's there. And that takes a lot of time, at least in my end of the business, it took a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And then you got church callings that take up time and you got family, a growing family. And so you're just saying, which is the most important at this particular time in, in your life. Um, and sometimes you choose work, Sometimes you choose family and sometimes you choose church and you can't just say one always trumps the other because there are different needs, different circumstances. And so it's just a balancing act. And sometimes, at least for me, sometimes I got it right and sometimes I got it wrong. Uh, Mm. Sometimes I was in a situation where either by design or just the work of faith, I had no choice but to choose one. Uh, Mm. And that may have caused some other things to suffer along the ways. And so, you know, being busy like that and, you know, and Karen as a stay at home mom, I mean, she deserves all the credit for, you know, having to deal with the decisions that were thrust upon me as the breadwinner and mm-hmm. as the church guy and to doing all that. But, you know, it was hard for her. Um, but we came out of it not permanently scarred uh, with their testimony stronger than they were before and with an appreciation for God and, and the sacrifice of his son that allows us to, to do what we do. I don't know yeah. if that's what you want, but 
there's no there's no secret to this. It's just day by day. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I remember being in a um, when I was an elders quorum president, I was in a uh, uh, kind of like a, a fireside council training thing with uh, Elder Bednar, and he he came and it was over at the at Temple Hill, and I remember someone asking him how to have work-life balance. And he goes, listen, there's no such thing as work-life balance. He's, he's like, he's like, listen, what you got, he's like, you're, you're one of those jugglers with plates on the sticks. And he's like, and every once in a while, something needs to spin to keep it all going. And he goes, and that's just, that's just how it works. And so I agree with you. Um, let, let me, let me ask you, you know, this is another thing that's, that's really interesting. I think it's, you know, being a member of the church, fa the family structure tends to be a little bit more traditional, usually. I think it's changing a little bit, has changed a, a little bit over time in my life. But traditionally, you see a, a traditional family where, you know, one one of the parents, usually the, the father is the breadwinner, stay-at-home mom. Uh, and in California, that's really hard to do uh, just because of cost of living. But have you... How did you guys navigate the dynamic? Because I, I've seen a lot of my friends have this issue where when one person's going to work all the time and one person is home all the time, neither one of them kind of understands what the other one's going through, if that makes sense. Like, oh, yeah. And and uh, how how were you and your wife able to navigate that as you as you went through life? Well, again, the question presupposes that we did a great job of that. Um, <laughs> you know, we did navigate it because we came out alive and loving each other at the end, but it was difficult. Um, yeah. And most of it was is that I think we were lucky because Karen, even though from where you see is this, you know, kind of shy, quiet woman, she's not shy and quiet. And so, um, you know, she would just say, I can't do this. I need something to keep me on balance. And so one of the mm -hmm. things that she started to do after our second child was born is she would she went back to school uh, to get her degree. And it was one, to get a degree and two, to do something other than stay home and take care of the kids. Mm -hmm. And so that meant that she would go to school at night. And so I had to be home at night to watch the kids. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's just, you, everybody has to figure out, everybody's making sacrifices, but sometimes you have to sacrifice for the other side. And, you know, a stay-at-home mom is mostly making the sacrifices for the dad to go out and earn a living and doing all that. And it has to happen. But the dad needs to make sacrifices to make sure that, that the, the mom has... Uh, that's joy in her life as opposed to just home. I mean, we've been, we've had, you've seen all the cars around the house. We had three of our daughters and 10 of our grandkids here uh, mm -hmm. for the last week. And oh my goodness. I mean, it just, you know, it, you know, a two year old, a three year old, and a four year old boys, and then a whole bunch more up to, eight, to 16 or 18. And so, you know, the confusion, the noise, the stuff, and Every time I'm around my grandkids, I recognize this is what Karen dealt with when I was at work yeah. or when I was out serving. And it's just, uh, you know, I couldn't do it. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, there's no easy thing. There's no way through all this. Um, mm -hmm. It's always going to be hard. 
and there's good things, there's joy that goes along with it, but there's a lot of frustration that goes with being uh, a parent of young kids. Yeah. Uh, there's no two ways about it. One thing that I think is interesting, and it was explained to me one time, is that when, when we, you know, when you go to work, the thing about being out of the home and working is you have an identity uh, outside of just being like, I, I come here and I'm Josh, I'm the partner at the law firm, and then I go home and then I'm Austin, Piper, Lexi, and Lincoln's dad, right? And then when I take them to their activities, I am, the, you know, I'm dad. And, you know, when you have somebody who's staying at home, they're just, they, they have no identity outside of so-and-so's mom or so-and-so's dad, and that, that can be tough. Um, and it's hard when you're, you know, I, I have a, one of my best friends, him and his wife, they've, um, you know, they kind of have this push pull that, you know, who does what and, you know, who, who, you know, he comes home and he's tired. She's been working at it all day and she's tired. So who, who takes over and, uh, you know, you just, uh, yeah, that's one of those things that you have to navigate. And, uh, how do tell me, how do you think, um, does, does, do you think that the church provides anything for you that helps you guide um, your, you know, your marriage relationship? I think so, if you listen. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the question is, if you listen, mm -hmm. um, you know, the message I get from the church from as long as I've been involved in it is to acquire the characteristics of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And if you try to model your life after Jesus Christ, it helps you to be less selfish, more selfless, keeping, putting other people's needs and wants ahead of your own. Mm. Um, and yet sometimes the, the patriarchal order or the culture of the church runs counter to that, mm. which causes men to miss the real boat. Not all men, but some men who miss the boat, who think, I'm in charge, you know, and I've got the priesthood. And so you should do this. And maybe he learned that from his dad and from, he learned that from his, his grandfather. But so, yeah, for me, at least the church was a positive influence on that. Not that, again, not that I always did this right, uh, but, and I would be called up short from time to time by my wife, but at least I was able to listen and not get mad at her and recognize that, yes, She's right, and I got to do better. Yeah, but but you know, talking about what you say is, is that it's hard for both sides to do that. And so, one of the things I did um, at around my sixty fifth birthday is I wrote a personal history, and the purpose of it was to give to my grandchildren. And the reason I did it is my grandfather wrote one and gave it to all of us when he was sixty five, and and it was a great blessing in my life, even though I was probably only 10 or 12 when I got it. I, I got to see him in a different sort of way. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that Karen said as she wrote the, you know, the various drafts and helped me put it together, she goes, man, I didn't realize how stressful you were or how stressed you were with your job. I, <laughs> I knew it was stressful, but I didn't realize just how much stress it, it created for you. Um, yeah. And so that's just going back and forth, not really doing that does that make yeah, sense that it totally makes sense yeah i mean that's 
that yes, that makes a lot of sense. So you now tell me, uh, you've you've served in some pretty significant callings. Like I said, you've been a bishop, you've been um, a stake president, and you mentioned just a little while ago, um, just just a moment ago, you said some men use you know get get their priesthood and they they kind of miss the boat on that. What do you think? contributes to that i mean you you've been counseling guys i'm sure for i mean what 20 years if you've done two bishop stints and a stake presidency stint you've had 20 years of counseling members of the church what do you think uh contributes to that that's a really good question and i don't have a really good answer how's that in the sense that i mean it could be one of the things i referred to is cultural Mm -hmm. we learn from we, we learn from watching our parents and watching people around us as to how to interact. Even though we don't recognize that we're learning it, we kind of do that. And I learned, I learned part of that from my parents. I mean, my parents had a good marriage for everything I could see. Uh, they didn't yell at each other. Uh, my dad treated my mom with respect. And, and, and I realized there was tension in their marriage uh, in a sense that when my mom wanted to go to work, my dad really didn't want her to go to work, but she wanted to go to work. And so, but he, he gave in, if you will. And so mm-hmm. she went to work and that was a good thing for her. And so I, you know, for me, it was easy because I got to watch two people who tried their best to be less selfish and to allow the other one to, to move forward uh, in a way that would make them happy. So I don't know that there's a good answer to that. I don't know. You can teach it, but it's hard. It's hard to undo what happens as you grow up. But if somebody literally, you know, uh, the grace of God can allow us to change in any way possible if we're willing to allow God to intervene in our lives. But you've got to get yourself to a point where you're willing to listen and to recognize some of the things that you need to change. And I believe that the Lord will help you change that, but you just need to do that. And Karen's done that through her life and made some changes. I've done that through my life and made some changes, probably not as many as I could or should. Um, But people that seem to do the best and find the most happiness in life are those that, we hear this all the time in the church, is repenting daily. trying to figure out what it is and then asking, you know, even doing come follow me. And, you know, the question that came up in a couple uh, weeks ago is, you know, you know, the question that's asked is, you know, what, what more do I lack? Mm. That's a scary question to ask the Lord. If you really want to hear the answer to it, yeah. you know, what, what more do I lack? And we all lack something more than mm. a few things. Yeah. And it's the question is whether we're willing to, or we're so comfortable with where we're at and maybe happy where we're at and yet not being willing to ask that question and following the promptings that you get will sort of stop you from moving forward the way Heavenly Father wants you to do it. I heard one time, I think, I can't remember who exactly it was, but I remember someone saying, you really want to get better in your life sit on sit on the edge of your bed look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself what is one thing that i am doing that i need to change today and is it and if you really think about it you'll find it and it won't be something you like 
And he said, it'll be, it'll be something that'll be really hard. But if you do that every single day, you will get better every single day. Yeah, but that's hard. That's so hard. <laughs> it is. It is. And but it's not, you know, but but change for the best, though, it doesn't, it, it's not, it doesn't go like this. You know, it, it's up and down. And, you know, a lot of these things, I, I tell my, my son, he's 16. And, you know, he thinks he's got the you know, he thinks he's got it all figured out. And then every once in a while, life smacks him in the face and he realizes he doesn't, you know, and, and uh, I tell him all the time, I go, yeah, you're going to mess up. I expect you to. It's not like you're, it's not like you're going to be perfect all the time. It's okay. Just accept it. Be mad about it for a little while, move on, get better, you know, and that's so now you mentioned promptings and I wanted to go into that a little bit following promptings because I can tell you in my own life, this is something that I struggle with is, is knowing when you're getting a prompting versus when you're, you're uh, kind of just thinking on your own. Uh, how, how have you in your life, as you're looking at personal revelation, how have you found to differentiate those things? Yeah, good question. No simple answer. Um, yeah. In the sense that, on the one hand, when you hear these good brethren speak, um, you know, follow the promptings of the Holy Ghost, as if it's that easy. Oh, okay, I'll just do that. I'll just, you know, listen and go. Um, right. And I'm not so sure that Heavenly Father wants to prompt you for every decision in your life. He wants you to figure a lot of this stuff out on your own. Yeah. And to, to maybe as you go, as you come across various decisions in your life, to work it out in your own mind and then take it to the Lord in prayer and say, have I got this right? Mm -hmm. uh, and to find out and wait for an answer on that. And sometimes the answer doesn't come automatically. And so you have to go. And so... You know, for me, um, as I try to path, try to, as I've tried over my life to chart my path, uh, I go back to my patriarchal blessing. It says, "Follow the prophet. Follow the prophet. Even the elect will be deceived." And the only protection for you and Ned is to follow the prophet. And so. And that's hard for some people because we live in political times, big issues are there, and sometimes, you know, the prophet is making a statement that you kind of disagree with. Um, and I guess for me, in many ways, that has not always been that difficult because I go back to my patriarchal blessing and then I try to look for why, why the prophet's right and I'm wrong, uh, as opposed to why the prophet's wrong and I'm right. Mm. And I, I just believe just over a year, you know, 70 years of living that I've never been, I've never gone wrong by following the prophet on everything. And, and when I followed the prophet, even though I wasn't sure that, that that was not sure, even though I, I was second guessing him, I, in the end, I came to realize that he was so, so right on all this stuff. Hmm. Um, you know? And so, you know, at different times in my life, I felt like I've been overwhelmed with church service and, you know, what in the world am I doing here? Uh, and yet I just, you know, prayed about it and figured out that I'm just going to keep on until those that are above me who are inspired to know what to do will do it. And it's worked out okay for me. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So yeah, I mean, you know, I'm trying to look at, you know, trying to look at the decisions that we're confronted with and waiting for inspiration uh, is, is a test of patience and it, it, it takes a level of maturity and patience to listen carefully. Yeah. So, and let me finish this. One of the things that I've come to realize, for me at least, is, is that God will never allow me to make it a, a, an important decision in my life without giving me a clear answer. Mm. And so, you know, for example, as a state president, I had to uh, make a recommendation to who would be a bishop when it was time to replace a bishop. And that's going to affect that person's life, it's going to affect that person's family's life, and it's going to affect many, many lives in the ward. I mean, it's a, a big decision that you would think the Lord would help you figure that out. And so you go through this process of trying to receive inspiration. And at least in my case, it was never a situation where the Lord just puts a name in front of my head and said, this is the person I want to be the bishop. Um, the Lord didn't work with me that way. He wanted me to work it out. But when the time came, and I had focused on a name, I would take that name to the Lord in prayer, oftentimes in the temple, and wait for an unmistakable spiritual confirmation that this is what the Lord wanted. And I never called the bishop unless I got that. And sometimes I would do my due diligence, take a name to the, temp take the, name to the temple, and not get the spiritual confirmation. So I'd start all over again hmm. uh, and do it again. And so, I would do that. And so one of the things I came to realize is, is that the Lord calls these people for whatever reason. He always made it clear to me why he always made it clear to me who he wanted called. Hmm. But he never let me in on the whys. Hmm. Uh, and, and I would find that out over the next three to five years as to the whys. And so that's a that's a testimony a faith experience that I've had that allows me to recognize that the Lord is, he is in charge of this. I don't know how he does it, but he is in charge of this and he has a plan and he won't let us get too far off the road as we, as these human beings do the best they can and administer in various church callings to do the best they can. Yeah. And that was, that's actually something that I think leads perfectly into what I wanted to, uh, one of the things I really wanted to talk with you about. And that is, you know, for some reason, my generation in particular, um, there tends to be, uh, I don't know if I would call it a mass exodus, but uh, there, it's a concerning amount of members that kind of come from my generation who are really struggling um, with, with continuing to go to church. And I don't know maybe it's always been like this. Maybe, maybe your generation, my parents' generation all had this same thing in a different light, but it just certainly is alarming to me how many of my friends have stopped coming to church. And one of the things that I think has been really interesting anecdotally is I think that some of this uh, comes from, you know, when we were in the nineties kind of going through seminary, there was this idea that uh, this concept that everything that the prophet said uh, was gospel. And since then, the, the church has kind of clarified and said, well, there are times when he's speaking as a prophet, and there's times that he's, that he's speaking as a man. And 
and I and I've seen that to be true serving in local leadership positions, where um, you know I could tell these are these are men who are led by God, but also men <laughs> who are imperfect. Um, perhaps you can share a little bit about what you learned about the relationship between God leading His church through these imperfect people who he's called in these leadership positions? Well, I can only say for myself, I mean, he called me to be a bishop and the imperfect person twice. Mm -hmm. And he called me to be a state president as a very imperfect person. And it's not like I would get up every morning. I use this example for the prophet, but I'll just use it for me. It's not like I would get up, take a shower, brush my teeth and then have a one hour interview with the savior who told me what I needed to do that day. It doesn't work that way. Uh, at least it didn't work that way for me. Um, what we did or what I did as a bishop was a lot of thinking, a lot of pondering, a lot of praying and watching the Lord in quiet sort of ways, direct my thoughts in a particular direction. But it wasn't like a voice. It wasn't clear. It was just, okay, this is what it is. And then you counsel together with your counselors. You counsel with the word counsel. You get all sorts of input from all these people that allowed you to make the right decision. Make, it allows you to reach a conclusion that you then take the Lord and receive a confirmation of it. Um, you know, one of the examples I used as a state president with my counselors is We'd be sitting around in the, in the table and there'd be a tough decision, you know, to make. And in a joking sort of way, one of them once said, well, it's a good thing you've got the keys uh, because you're on the hook for this one. <laughs> and, and I, and this literally, as I was thinking about that, I was in the car and I really think this was like an inspirational moment where the Lord, I'm thinking about that and the Lord, the thought that came to my mind was, is that each of those counselors is jointly responsible with me, the key holder, for the decisions that I make, that they need to work with me to make sure that that happens. And so I, when the next time we got together, I said, look, guys, you're on the hook with this me, for me, too. We need to work together, pray together, and live our lives in such a way that we reach a consensus that is acceptable to the Lord. And so... But yeah, I mean, it's not like uh, a church leader, at least for me, and I don't think I'm that much different from anybody else. It's not like I'm receiving constant uh, emails uh, in my head from the Lord as to what I need to do and what's going to happen. Sure. Uh, sometimes, you know, thoughts come into your head and trying to figure out whether it's your own idea or something else. You just follow it through. You, you counsel with other people and you counsel with the Lord and you make the best decisions. And I think... For the most part, it works. I mean, an example of that is putting together a state conference. Um, I used to worry when we first started doing this that, um, you know, the discussions to who to ask to speak and what they should speak on as you go around the table in a, in a presidency meeting, trying to figure it out. And I remember thinking, this is like making sausage. It's ugly. I mean, <laughs> in the sense that you don't feel, at least I didn't feel like it was obvious that the Lord was directing us what we were doing. You know, it's just a bunch of men sitting around trying to do this. 
Um, but then I realized that the Lord did direct us as I watched the state conference unfold with people that we were, I felt inspired to select, give a talk and inspired them to give a talk. That was amazing. Um, like for example, we just had a state conference now and those two youth who spoke, I'm sure that President Martel and all the counselors had no idea that they would be that good. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, they, there's no way you would anticipate that, uh, but the Lord knew who they were and to what to do. Yeah. I mean, they, and the Lord does it very quietly. I mean, there was once where I asked, uh, I had this thought that I wanted to ask this young man who um, had recently become more active in the church, was getting ready to go on a mission to speak in state conference. And I'd interacted him a little bit before you got here. We had these big bike rides that the, the priests in the state would go on. And he was with us, but he'd hurt his leg or something. So he was just along helping with the sandwiches and stuff like that. So I talked to him and he was good enough. And so I went up to his bishop at a meeting. I go, I'm thinking about asking such and such to speak at state conference. And he goes, I could tell by the look on his face that, oh, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> But he, but he, but I guess he was more respectful of me. Maybe he should have given me the, the truth. But he goes, well, you know, he's kind of shy. Uh, I think maybe he'd be okay. And so uh, we asked him to speak. He gave a 10 minute talk without notes. It was a home run. It was unbelievable. Wow. And then I came to learn afterwards that uh, six months before he would only speak he wouldn't ever talk in school. He would not talk to the teachers. And he was living with his grandparents. And the only person he would talk to was his grandfather. He wouldn't talk to his grandmother. He was so shy and so to himself. And so here, this crazy state president wants him to speak in state conference. And he hits a home run. So here's where the Lord guided me to do that kind of stuff. But I, but I don't recognize it at the time. I just kind of do it. Does that make any sense at all to you? Yeah, it does. It's funny how you can really you can really use that in, in a lot of aspects of your life where things don't make sense at the time. But then later on you look back and you go, wow, that was strangely perfect how that worked out, you know? And uh, I think that, that, that you can do that for a state conference. You can do that for a big decision in your life, something that doesn't make a lot of sense. And that's where I think the revelation, to me, personal revelation seems to be hardest. It's really easy to follow personal revelation that makes sense. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> yeah. but, like, but when you got one like that, where it's like, that's the person you want me to call to be this bishop? That doesn't make sense at all. Or... You want me to do what? You know, I'm, I'm supposed to build an ark? You know, I mean, like that kind of stuff is where faith really, I think, I think comes in. Did you, when you became a bishop, I, it's, I, I, I'm curious about this because I've talked to a few bishops. I've had friends that have been bishops and they've been, they've, they've been surprised at the, the, the the significant issues that members are having in their lives. Did you ever have a situation where you walk in or you hear some of the stuff that's going on and you're like, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> you know, or anything like that? 
Now, I guess I came to the realization early on, and maybe I knew that before, is, is that members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have all the problems that everybody else in the world has. Mm. Hopefully less, but they're still there. You still have child abuse. You still have uh, substance abuse. You still have infidelity. You still have all that stuff. And so the idea that somehow we're the special people who are immune from all these things is a mistake. Um, mm-hmm. But I think to the extent that, you know, we understand the atonement and, and we're given guidelines by the Lord that we're, we try to follow, it will keep us away from that, but we're just individuals. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, you know, we still have divorces in the church, but we still have less than in the world. We still have less of all of this stuff in the church. Uh, but it's still there, and uh, you know, to to say what's wrong with this church, you know, as a bishop or anybody else, because you still have people who are committing uh, the stupid things that happen in the world is just sort of uh, it just you're silly. Uh, you're just not going to happen. Yeah, maybe there's just something wrong with my friends because <laughs> I just because <laughs> I sometimes I I think that some of the people who who I, you know, it seems like when somebody, when, 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 a, when somebody goes haywire, they really go with gusto. You know what I mean? It just seems like, I, I don't know. It's, 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 it's funny. Um, I, I imagine as, as a bishop and a stake president, you saw a lot of messy situations and a lot of really successful uh, uh, applications of the atonement. Yeah, and I, I guess I remember most of the applications of the atonement and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. thinking about spouses who can forgive each other truly and allowing a marriage to to succeed when you think that there's no way it can succeed, and it did. Um, you just see people who overcome addictions, who overcome stuff that's there, and... Um, and the atonement is so real. It's just a question of tapping into the power of the atonement and recognizing it. But people give up on themselves. They get down on themselves. And, and then maybe we have more of that in the church because we hold ourselves to a higher standard. And then if we fail to reach that standard, we feel that somehow we're tainted goods and we're never good enough. And that's just not true at all. It's just not true at all. The Lord will never give up on any of us. Mm-hmm. That's my belief. I, I just don't believe he'll ever give up on any of us. Life is a whole lot easier on this life if we'll follow what he has to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he recognizes that, and that's why his son came. But he recognizes that if we do make mistakes, there's a path forward to get out of it. And I don't know, people should feel guilty about they shouldn't feel shameful, I should say. They shouldn't feel shame for making mistakes. Uh, maybe guilty is a better term for it because they made a mistake. But um, the Lord forgets all this stuff. He really mm. does. Yeah, at some point, I think we have to learn to forgive ourselves for these things. And that's the hardest thing. Is that I remember as a young bishop, there was a, a pretty introverted father of you know, and he, he was a teacher and he was very self-conscious of everything. And I remember having an interview with him and he goes, um, he goes, I'll never amount to anything in the church. He says, I'm just, I'm nothing. And he, and he goes, I didn't even serve a mission. 
<laughs> and I said, well, let me, let, let me in on, on a little secret. I did not serve a mission either. And that kind of perked him up because they see the bishop as this perfect person who never makes a mistake in his life and, mm-hmm. uh, or never made a, a wrong decision in his life. And here's another one. If you've read uh, President Eyring's biography, I mean, here's President Eyring. Here's one of the most spiritual, most influential, spiritually guided men you'll ever meet. When he was a young man during the, I think it was the Korean War, uh, uh, the church made an agreement with uh, the military that they would only allow, that they would grant student, or they would grant a deferment for two young men per year out of each ward to go on missions, and the rest would be drafted. And so uh, President Eyring's bishop selected him and one other young man to get that deferment. What do you think he did? He turned it down because he thought his education was more important. Hmm. Okay. Wow. So is that what the Lord wanted him to do? Probably not. Uh, but did the Lord just give up on him because, you know, he got his priorities out of whack at that particular time? Okay. And so one of the things that President Irwin did is he recognized sort of afterwards. And so he became at that time a state missionary and was it spent about 20 hours a week as a state missionary while he was going to school and as a young as a young married you know young father wow. so yeah I mean, it's just there's all these things that we hold ourselves up you know the joke i've always made half truth and half what is is that i can't believe anyone ever made me a bishop let alone a state president i didn't go on a mission i didn't go to byu for heaven's sakes i went to cow <laughs> Uh, but it doesn't really make it doesn't really make a difference. Does that make yeah. any sense? It does make sense. And you know, the thing is, is that I think that sometimes people are called because of their differences in experience. I mean, you being a guy who didn't go on a mission could relate to the guy who's sitting there with you saying, "I didn't even go on a mission." You know, yeah. I mean, that was probably exactly what I needed to hear at that time. You know, to now, make himself feel better. I feel that I missed out on the experience of being a missionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's just something that I can't get back. I mean, Karen and I eventually will go on a mission, but it'll be a different experience and a different point of our lives. And so I wouldn't use it as an excuse for a young man or a young woman who feels that they should need to go on a mission to go. Well, that mm-hmm. Telford did go, it didn't hurt him. That, that's not the point. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tell my my son who you know he he plans on going on a mission and uh, and I'm proud of him for that I didn't think I would uh, growing up there are lessons that you learn on a mission that you just can't learn anywhere else you know yeah. there's there's just even some of the logistical stuff being able to live with somebody you don't know 24 hours a day for three months and learn to get along with them you know I don't know where else you're gonna you're gonna get that planning you know learning how the the structure of a mission is very similar to the structure of a church the way it's set up i mean uh leadership in those types of roles being out on your own learning how to budget money i mean a lot of stuff that i learned so many lessons that prepared me for life um that i i don't believe i would have gotten anywhere else so i think it's a it's it's great you know if you can go on a mission you should i mean it's it, it was the best two years of experience that set me up for the rest of my life. I can attribute every good thing that's happened to me in my life, to my decision to go on a mission. 
you know. So. You know, let me get back to one of the statements you made about, you know, so many of your peers are losing interest in the church, leaving the church, going, you know, almost anti-church in some cases. And um, one of my callings right now is I'm the executive secretary to the Area 70. And so I get to be involved with stuff almost like a fly on the wall. I get invited to these meetings and stuff like that uh, that, I, that I have no real role in other than I'm his executive secretary. And so, um, and I'm struggling with the name. It'll come to me. I'm going to struggle with remembering anybody's name. But anyway, Elder whatever came out uh, about a year ago and he wanted to have a meeting with the the stake presidents in the Roseville Coordinating Council. There's 11 stakes in the Roseville Coordinating Council and their wives. And it was just to be a, an informal dinner meeting. Uh, it was held at the Roseville Stake Center. And then I think he spoke afterwards. It was like a, a fireside afterwards or a devotional. And so he spoke about this idea of what's happening in the church and the growth of the church and everything else. And so one of the things he said, and, and I had, I was taking notes and I compared my notes with Elder Wilson, who's the Area 70. I go, did I get this right? Uh, because some of the stuff he was saying seemed so different than what my perception was in terms of where the church was. And so he knows you got it right. He says, um, the percentage of members active in the church, going to sacrament meeting, going to that, is higher than it ever had, is higher now then it, it's been constantly going up since the late 60s hmm. yeah hmm, that's exactly right and the number of people who are leaving the church is lower the worst you know in terms of it was much worse in the 70s than it is now hmm. and the number of people coming back to the church has gone crazy high they used to have, you know, for restoration of blessings, they had two general authorities who would handle that and to look through all the stuff and make recommendations to the first presidency. There's so many applications for restoration of blessings that they now have eight general authorities doing that. Wow. Um, and, the, you know, the growth of the church everywhere is just astounding. So if you look at what's happening in California, um, that doesn't give you a, a global view of what's happening around the world. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. And like the church in Africa is growing at unbelievable uh, uh, efforts. I mean, they're, they're built, they're creating stakes there almost weekly uh, as they go forward in Africa with the growth of the church there. Mm. And so his point was, is that, yeah, we've got issues we have to deal with, but you know, don't think that we're in trouble. Uh, the church is in great shape growth-wise and everything else as we move forward. And so have a positive attitude about this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me ask you, what do you think, you know, you've, you've been kind of shifting gears a little bit. Um, like I said, you've, you've been in, in a lot of major leadership positions. Um, you talked about asking what lack I yet. What do you think we as members, just in general, uh, currently lack that we could see, that you'd like to see more of? You know, I'm not going to be able to answer that question. You ask me good questions that I don't really have an answer to. Uh, uh -huh. 
I can't, I can't speak for members of the church. I really don't know. I can speak to me and people that are close to me. And again, I think what all of us, what I lack and what I work on the most is obedience. I mean, not talking about what we do in the temple, but I mean, there's enough written about it. I mean, the first covenant that we make in the temple is obedience. Mm-hmm. And, and I think putting Christ first in our life is what we all need to do, which makes things easier as we go through from there on. Mm-hmm. If, we, if, we, if we put that first in our life, I mean, it's the old primary question is, what, what should I do? What would Christ do? Well, I mean, that's a pretty good answer. It, it's a pretty good way to look at what you should do in a given situation or a decision you have to make. Mm-hmm. But this idea of obedience has always been forefront with me, and I tried to be obedient. Um, and you may have heard me say this in, in one of the meetings we've been, but my son's mission president, President Stone, uh, became a general authority seventy after he finished his role as a mission president. And so he stayed close with a lot of his missionaries. One of them was with my son. And so when he would have an assignment in Northern California, he'd come up and get here a day early and stay at our house and go play golf with Justin and me. And so but, but once we were having breakfast and I said to him, I go, how did you pick the leaders in your mission? You know, how did you pick them? And his answer really surprised me, but there's a lot of thought to this. He goes, well, that's easy. You might think I picked the ones who had the, the innate leadership principles. No, I picked the most obedient missionaries because hmm. I found that an obedient missionary, I could make with the help of the Lord, a great missionary. And I think an obedient child of God the Lord can make him into a, you know, a, 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 an exalted person. Yeah. And so just trying to be obedient and not that you're going to be perfect at it, but trying to be obedient to the, the guidelines that God has given to each of us in terms of how we live our lives, how we treat other people, how we interact with anyone else. So I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but that's what I worked on for myself. Sure. When you say obedience, let me ask you this question because there's a lot of stuff we're hearing a lot more about doctrine versus um what do they call it policy so when you when you talk about obedience what what would you refer being obedient to good question and i guess the answer would be more along the lines of doctrine but try to trying to understand that the policies are there to help us to keep the doctrine. Mm-hmm. And so you could say that the policies are guidelines, but wouldn't you want to follow a guideline that's given to you by someone smarter than you? Sure. Uh, and so I think by trying to, to live your life in accordance with those things, you're better off. And it's, but it's, it's easier said than done. For example, one of the things that, um, President Nelson has encouraged us to do is to keep the Sabbath day holy. And there's been a lot of talks as to what that is. Um, you know, to have regular time in the scriptures, you know, the Come Follow Me program. Doing all that stuff isn't doctrinal. Uh, you know, how you keep the Sabbath isn't doctrinal. Uh, but the, the joys of keeping the Sabbath 
are doctrinal, but how you go about that is more policy than anything else. But listening closely to the policies and trying to see how that will bless your lives, I think will bless your lives. Yeah, I agree. It just, it seems sometimes, my my experience, just in what I've, I've seen, is that some members use obedience in a very Pharisees, Sadducees way. Okay. If that makes sense. Like not not every not everybody for sure. I I think uh, you know there are some people I've seen it where we'll use the Sunday for example. I remember one time sitting in a in a um, in an elders quorum meeting, and this is an award back when I was in law school, and we were talking about keeping the Sabbath day holy. And this guy got up, very nice guy, like him a lot, still do, think he's great, but he railed on people watching TV on Sundays and just said, if you're watching TV on Sundays, that is a completely against, and and uh, kind of looking down on people. And, and there was another guy there, he raised his hand, he goes, listen, my dad is not a member of the church. My dad, uh, you know, he, uh, he, he left the church a long, a long time ago. And he goes, uh, we have a really bad relationship. The one thing that we can do is sit there on a Sunday and watch a football game together. And he's like, I think I'm keeping the Sabbath day holy by maintaining that relationship with my father and being able to do this one thing. And the other guy wouldn't have it. <laughs> the other guy just wouldn't have it. And and it's just, it's so I think that it's it's it seems like it's a fine line um, of of figuring out where to be obedient when it comes to policy versus doctrine. I think so the way I've kind of I've shared with my friends when they've spoken to me about this is I said, listen, can you answer every question on the Temple Recommend interview, you know, affirmatively? And they say, yes. And I go, okay, that tells you you're recommended to God. So I think you're good. You know, everything else, it's, it's, uh, spirit of the law and it's something that you got to pray about and decide on your own but if you can answer those questions i think you're good what do you think about that i agree with that i agree with that in the sense that we got to be careful what the policies are for example in the last 20 years you're not going to hear any of the brethren talk about whether you should watch tv on sundays right that's 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 almost a cultural thing that exists out there Uh, there's all sorts of cultural things in the church that are accepted as policies, which really aren't. Right. They really aren't. And so um, you got to be careful with, you know, trying to be a Pharisee and to do all this stuff with no good meaning in it. I mean, yeah. I look at some of this, I, I don't want to lead somebody astray, but I mean, I look at some of the stuff that we do on Sundays that we feel very comfortable with that other people might think, oh my goodness, I can't believe that. President Telford would do that on Sunday. I mean, I, I got caught up short once when I was bishop early on when we had little kids and uh, Karen wanted to go on a bike ride on a Sunday after, you know, a nice summer afternoon when church is over and there's nothing left to do and take the kids on a bike ride. And I go, I don't think that's a good Sabbath day activity. And so she goes, you're nuts. And so we went on a bike ride and afterwards I, I thought, I was nuts, and there's nothing unsabbathy about getting on a bike with two little kids and having a nice time. Right. Um, yeah. And then there's the joke. It's it's probably anecdotal and not even true about um, uh, President 
Spencer W. Kimball, that, you know, he stayed at a, somebody's house, you know, for a state conference. And so on Sunday, when everything was over, they found him in the pool. And, and they go, what are you doing out there? And he goes, and, and jokingly, he says, it's okay in the pool as long as you don't splash. <laughs> and the joke he was trying to make is, it's okay to go in the pool as long as you don't have any fun. Heaven forbid right. fun on the Sabbath, which right. is what we do. When we, we goof up, we're so, we're so caught up in the, the don'ts on the Sabbath that we forget to do the do's on the Sabbath. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, you know, and that and that's uh, I think that that's something that uh, I was it. I think it was maybe Jay Golden and Kimball who said, "Don't take yourself too dang seriously." You know, uh, <laughs> probably didn't say dang. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't want to. So, so that's um, no. I I agree. Now you're you're also currently serving as the stake communications director. Um, tell me, tell me what that entails. I, I bet a lot of members don't even know what you do. <laughs> All right. It's a great calling. It's a little bit different than most of the other callings. And this whole idea of state communications has changed dramatically over the past four or five years. Um, it used to be called public affairs. And so public affairs was the idea that you go out and you interact with people who are not members of the church, not to not in a missionary mode, but to try to establish great relationships with them help them to see us, see the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its members in a positive light. And so uh, that was kind of what it was then. And then they changed the communications. And so we have kind of the two, two approaches or two focuses, if you will, not approaches, two focuses. And neither one is predominant over the other. The outward focus is exactly what I talked about. And so one of the things we do is I establish relationships with Bishop James Soto, who's the bishop of the of the Catholic or the Sacramento Archdiocese. I've established a relationship with uh, John Jackson, who's the president of Jesup University, which is a, a Christian college uh, located in Rockland, and other people that we deal with with various things. And, I'm not trying to convince them they're not going to ever join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but yet they become positive uh, ambassadors uh, to other people about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They say, hey, these are good people. They believe in Jesus Christ. They do all this. And so that's part of what we're doing, um, is putting that happen. The other part is more inward focusing, and that is you get all these, these emails from me, you know, saying, what about this? You need to take a look at this or whatever the deal is here um, to let members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Larry Saints, our case, in our case, our state, know all the good things that the church is doing so that they recognize that, that this church that they're a part of is a big part of the community. And so you get emails from me saying, you know, we... The Church of Jesus Christ has donated $10 million, and I may have the number wrong, to a LBGTQ uh, outreach program to help these people with some of the issues they're going through. And so, and that bothers some people uh, that, you know, that the church is doing that. But if you look behind what they're doing, they're just being the way that Christ would interact with these people. He wouldn't mm -hmm. say, get out of my life, you know. Uh, that's not the way he dealt with anyone. And so you see the church going out with 
groups that we had a terrible relationship with, the NAACP, that now we have a great relationship with because the church is doing that. And so one of the things that we're tasked to do as a communication is to find ways in various different ways through social media, state web pages, to highlight some of the, the good things that the church is doing throughout the world. Does that make Yeah, no, that's definitely makes sense. So maybe if the communications director, you know, uh, you could you could talk. You mentioned the LGBTQ community, the the church's relationship with that community, I feel, has gotten much better, and and uh, I think feelings within the church have progressed quite a bit on some fronts within that community. Perhaps you could shed a little more light on what you think that the church has been doing um, to kind of bring that that community together with us well i think basically what they do is they just accept them um, mm-hmm. in the sense that they go you are god's children uh, he loves you as much as he loves me and so um and then you know you know the church draws the line which offends some but is acceptable to others who draws the line and says that hey, uh, the fact that you have same-sex attraction does not mean you're a sinner, you haven't done anything wrong. It's just that, you know, we still have, and it will never change, the law of chastity. And so, you know, if you violate that law, um, that's not acceptable to God. It's not that he's necessarily going to punish you, but you're denying yourself some blessings in this life or maybe in the life to come. And so that's a, it's a difficult situation. And, and I think for people who, parents especially, and siblings and those who have same-sex attraction, when it's very close to them, they just have a hard time coming to grips with that. And it is, it is difficult. I mean, we've gone from, you know, 100 years ago where if somebody had same-sex attraction, you figure they had no, that's a choice they made and it, um, you know, have they made that choice? They're a sinner for making that choice. And I've come to realize that it's real. Uh, and there's just no denying it. And so for me to pass judgment on them in terms of how they feel and how they interact with, I'm not there. I mean, obviously, in the, from a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have to deal with it. But the Lord will deal with it. Uh, and the Lord will deal with it mercifully. I'm quite sure. Yeah. So I, th- I think it's an interesting thing you bring up. Parents, I know, I know some parents who've who've dealt with this, and yeah, it's a hard it's a hard pill to swallow when you have somebody that you love who has, you know, who is uh, part of that community and the church, you know, the church's stance being that, you know. To be to be an active member of the church, you have to not have had, you know, you 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 can't you can't have a relationship like that. You can't get married, you can't do those things, and uh, that's a struggle. That's a struggle for people to to hear when you have someone you love, especially when you've had a relationship that's been good and it's been such a big part of your life that you have somebody that is expected to essentially be if they want to stay a member of the church and go through the temple and do those things to stay single their entire lives and never know of a first kiss a first handhold of a first kid coming into the world um that's a struggle 
you know, it's it's tough. Um, but I but I will also say this, and I've shared this with some people who are on the other side of this, who who maybe are a little more uh, conservative, if you will. I don't know if that's even the right word. Their beliefs on this, and that is that I think that you know we know that God is a perfect judge. Thank goodness we're not the ones that have to judge. But if God is a perfect judge and there is something that was beyond their control, something that was placed in them for whatever reason, whether it's environmental, genetic, whatever it is, I got to think that God being a perfect judge is going to take that into account when they get to the judgment bar. And I am confident it will, but I don't know that. But I'm confident it will. Um, just because everything that the Lord does and everything that Jesus Christ does and has done indicates that he is merciful. Yeah. And even to those who, who go against his teachings, he is merciful. And different situations. I mean, it's just so different. I mean, people grow up in different aspects. And to judge somebody who grew up and never really had the opportunity to listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, who rejects it, you can't judge that person. Only the Lord can figure that one out. Uh, sure. You know, that's, um, that's very true. And, uh, you know, like I said, luckily we're not the ones that have to judge that. Uh, I think every single person on earth is just trying to have a very real human experience. You know, um. yeah, and you know, you you know, you know, some people ask the question, you know, you know, why did Karen get this life-changing spiritual experience that changed my life and the lives of our children? Why doesn't everybody get that experience? And I don't know the answer to that. It's true; yeah. it happened. It wasn't in her imagination, but and I don't know that and. and and I don't put it into the idea that, you know, some of the evangelicals, not all evangelicals, but some of the evangelicals who believe that, you know, we were born to this life and we're sinners and God's given up on us and, and there's no hope for us. And there's those that he really likes and he gives these blessings to. And you're just not on the list. Just, <laughs> I, I just don't think it works that way. Yeah. You know, and it's funny, too, because when you talk to somebody... It, that was one of the things when I was on a mission that I thought was so interesting was that I'd run into some of those people who think that way. And to me, it's so foreign, but to them, that's just the way it is. And that's just the way they've accepted it. And it's just so, so interesting how they can almost have the same conviction in their beliefs as I have in mine. And I just oh, yeah. find it so interesting. Well, that can be troubling. Actually, it can be very troubling. My son, is with the FBI and he ended up taking an assignment in Iraq. And he still to this day won't tell me what it is he did in Iraq, what the FBI was doing in Iraq during mm -hmm. the, the war. Uh, but he dealt with, he was kind of taken aback by the genuineness of the, the Muslim people and what they believed and how it affected every aspect of their life. And how can they, you know, like, Dad, how can they be that convinced that they're right? And I'm so convinced that I'm right. Are we both wrong? You know, and it's just, it's, it's hard to know. Wow. Yeah. 
Well, listen, I've had you on for a little while. I have a few questions I ask everybody I want to pose to you. You ready? Okay. Okay. So first one, what would you say is your biggest success in life? My kids. Yeah, the ones I've met have all been pretty good. You did okay. <laughs> well, they are a blessing to my life. They actually like each other and like being around each other. And it's, uh, they're just good. Yeah. They're fun. Yeah. I'm actually, that's one thing as a, as a parent, I've, I've said this a, a billion times. This is my favorite time of being a parent because these, they're, they're just so fun to watch them grow up. And, and, uh, I can't wait to see where all my kids end up. You know what I mean? Like what, what, what they end up doing in life. It's, uh, I, I, I just am so proud of all of them. You know, yeah. that I, I think that I think they're all going to do great. You know, um, when I say my kids, uh, you know, that's just that's too shallow. My kids, my grandkids, the family. Um, well, obviously, my wife is a key to all that, but they just bring joy. Yeah, that's awesome. What would you say is your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? <laughs> my biggest failure. My biggest failure. Well, I don't know that I, I don't know that I can say that I failed at something. I have regrets about missing out on opportunities to do things. Hmm. Uh, for example, a mission. Um, you know, I've never had a failure that rocked my life in any sort of way that God, you know, I had a stroke, as you know, which that's not a failure. That's just a life event that, that goes on that changed the way I was. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, you know, the, the overarching worry of my failure is, is that I haven't done enough. Mm -hmm. I haven't been spiritual enough. Mm -hmm. I haven't been as good a husband as I could have been or mm -hmm. should be now. I haven't been as good a dad or a granddad i always work i always worry about that in the back of my mind that i could have done more and the answer is yes you could have uh, right <laughs> uh, but yeah you know real quick I, I i know i've had you on here for a little while but i do want to talk about you know your stroke a little bit because you had a stroke at a very interesting time in your life right before you were going to be called to be a bishop a second time and you said something off air when we were preparing for this, that you said that you felt like something to the effect that you thought the stroke was exactly what you needed uh, at the time or something to that effect. Can you kind of just briefly talk about that? Yeah, probably career wise. I was at the, you know, the apex of my career. I was one of the two senior partners in a law firm of about 50 lawyers. Um, was a managing partner with the other senior partner. We were in charge of everything, the way our firm worked. I mean, you know, you basically, it was a, uh, a benevolent dictatorship. How's that? <laughs> but we were benevolent and, you know, we didn't line our own pockets with the money, but I was making more money than I ever thought I would make. And there was more money to be coming in the future. Um, and so then I had this stroke and so, um, I tried to go back to work and it just, it would not work. And so I just decided that I needed to 
you know, leave. And so I did that. In the meantime, um, I'd gotten a call from members of the church who were listening to this. I got a call from the executive secretary for the state president saying that President Wood would like to meet with you and your wife on Sunday. This was like Wednesday or Thursday. And my wife was actually out of town. Um, and, and I knew that they were looking for a bishop, but it never crossed my mind that it could be me uh, because I already been a bishop like 15 years earlier. But as soon as I got that call, I thought, oh no, this is what it is. I just can't believe this. Uh, you know, the spirit witnessed to me that you're going to get called as bishop. Uh, better get yourself ready for it. Whereas before, when I got called as bishop, the Lord let me know six months in advance. I put it in my journal uh, that I'm going to be called as bishop, which made no sense because the bishop hadn't even, he was at like three and a half years. And so, you know, there's no reason for that to happen, but I put it down and it ended up being there. But anyway, so on Friday, I woke up and I'd had a stroke in the middle of the night and it didn't affect me physically, but I couldn't speak and I didn't know my name. I didn't know anybody's name. I didn't know my wife's name. I knew she was my wife, but that was it. And I literally, I would open my mouth and I couldn't make any noise come out. And I, I just couldn't form a word. And so Karen figured out, took me to the hospital. Um, and I remember one of the things that I remember is, is that I had to sign the intake form. And so I had this pen in my hand and I thought, I don't even know my name and I don't even know how to write. So end of, end of story there. But anyway, so uh, the sick president came and saw me in the, in the emergency area that went I was admitted and he later shared with me his journal entries. And so he went back to his counselors and said, Ned's had a stroke. He can't talk. He's not in good shape at all. Nobody has any idea what the prognosis is, but it's just, it, you know, he certainly can't serve in his current capacity. And so both of his counselors said, well, we need to go someplace else. You know, we need to start looking again. And so he said, and here's where, here's the, the, the faith of him and the brave. He was convinced that the Lord wanted me to be the Savior, or to be the bishop. That was the clear impression that he'd gotten. And he couldn't figure out how he could get that so wrong. This goes back to how do you know when it's your idea or when the Lord's telling you to do that? And so he expressed that to them. They prayed about it and decided to just shelve it for a week or two. And so they came back and they prayed about it. I wasn't much better. I could now, I knew my name, uh, but I couldn't put a sentence together. And so he, as an act of faith, issued that call to me uh, to serve the bishop. And it really wasn't so much about me. It was, I, I'm more impressed with him than me um, in the sense that he, that's what the Lord wanted for me to be the bishop. And, from a selfish standpoint, it was the best thing that could have happened to me in terms of a recovery standpoint, because when you've had a stroke like that, you feel so self-conscious about your ability to do anything because you sound so stupid when you try to talk and you can't put a thought together or you just you wander off as you go this. And so I was I could have just reverted into a shell and not gotten much better. 
uh, it'd have been easier to do that. Um, just to sort of avoid people from the embarrassment of not being who I was. Uh, but by having this calling, I had no choice. And so the work put up with me and everybody put up with me. And after about six months, I was probably about 85% of normal. Um, I still have little things that now and again that most people wouldn't know about. But, um, but yeah, and so it's an interesting thing that uh, how the Lord directs his church and the faith of people, in this case, President Wood, to understand that he got it right and that that's what the Lord wanted for Ned Telford to, have, to do. So when you, we talked off air, I mentioned, uh, you know, because you eventually would become a stake president and you said there were some things that you think you learned in that second stint as bishop that helped you later as a stake president. Um, uh, you know, could you kind of give us a little bit more of an idea of what that what that was and, and how you think that, that that helped you? I guess part of it, it helped me in the sense that uh, I had to taste I had to taste a big, big dose of humility because I'd always been, in terms of my role as a lawyer, um, successful and self-confident. And so I remember thinking that the Lord had taken away from me all the things that I needed to be a lawyer. Hmm. And, and so I had to deal with that sense of humility and it caused me to be a lot more grateful for things that I did have and to see the good in life that I didn't. Uh, I became far, far less competitive, whether that was by design or the competitive part of my brain was destroyed with all the other parts. Um, but it just made me um, a better listener, better listener because I couldn't talk very well, so it was much easier to listen. <laughs> And to have a better insight of people who, who, who didn't have um, all the, the skill levels that I felt like I had before and were doing the best they could with a limited set of skill levels or a limited whatever it is that they had to, that was their life. And I, and I felt that way. And I can see how they felt that way. And I think it made me a better, it made me a better person. Yeah, that's interesting. I would be curious to see. I, I couldn't imagine a life where my competitive edge was was diminished. I just, it's just so ingrained. It'd be really well, interesting. It is. I mean, that's, that's part of being a trial lawyer. It's like yeah. single combat warrior, you know. You're yeah. and, and there's rules that you have to follow, but the idea is, to win with yeah. the rules, like one-on-one -on -one basketball is the best example I can think of. Is you're out there to win. You got a referee that keeps everything in line, but but I just it just winning didn't make any difference to me after that. It really didn't. Yeah, that's so interesting. I just I don't know what that would be like. My, <laughs> my son, my son and I, we were. It was funny. I took them down. I took my kids down to the Golden One Center. I got to. A couple hours on the court where the Kings play, and I got put. I got caught up in this five-on-five -five game, and we just, you know, we were down six-one, and then I 
you know, I, I was integral in helping us get up back in. And then we were up 10-7 and we ended up losing 12-10. to And I was so angry I threw the ball across the court. I was so mad to lose. And it was just so funny because my son was like, this is pickup basketball. It doesn't matter. And I'm like, it does matter. <laughs> you know, it matters. Winning matters. <laughs> you know, it just. Well, competitiveness. I was thinking about this today. There's a positive side of competitiveness in the sense that competition who makes you try the hardest to do your best and to get better. There's nothing wrong with that. But uh, winning to win because somehow that makes you feel better about yourself that you're better than this other person. There's nothing good that comes from that. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, well, I'm glad that we, we got to talk about those things. I have one more question that I ask everybody. And that is that, you know, at some point, you know, you're going to pass away. And when you do, there'll be a funeral. I, and I can tell you just from everything I know about you, it will be a large funeral. There'll be a lot of people there. And uh, someone's going to give you a eulogy. What would be the one thing that you hope someone would say in your eulogy? That he tried his best to develop the characteristics of Jesus Christ. But I'm not sure they're going to say that. <laughs> but you talking about a eulogy. I told my kids once we do our adult kids once every two or three years, we take them on a vacation, a nice vacation. Like we're going to Costa Rica next fall and uh, or next spring. And so uh, I got them together on one of these vacations and I go, okay. And they didn't do it. They didn't really do it. I go, I want you to, I'm going to lock you guys all in a room. I want you to write the eulogy for Paul and I, because I want to hear all the good things, because I'm going to be dead. But I'd like to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, man. I don't know. My, but yeah, I mean, eulogies, that's a really good question. I gave the eulogy. My father-in-law passed away, uh, who was uh, stepfather-in-law. He's not a member of the church. And, and you guys may have known him, but probably not. But... Uh, he was a federal district court judge, Ed Garcia. Oh, okay. And so, and, and so the, there were two eulogies, and I was one from more of the family, and then there was uh, Justice Brennan, or Judge Brennan, who did it more from the, the, um, uh, the, the, the lawyer side or the judge side. And when I was talking to him beforehand, he goes, it must have been really intimidating to you know, be dating Karen and and, you know, Judge Garcia, who had the reputation of being tough. And I go, no, he was just Ed to me. Yeah. He was just Ed to me. And so I'm, to my kids, I'm dad. I'm not Bishop Telford or President Telford. I'm just dad. And I don't even think they think about any of that kind of stuff. I hope not. Yeah. So. Well, well that's. That's awesome. And you've been a great example. I can tell you that you've, you've been a great neighbor and you've been a great example to me. Um, uh, and you can see it through your kids and your grandkids. I had the privilege of, of being the Sunday school teacher to two of your grandkids, uh, both went on missions, both excellent people. And uh, you obviously have a lot to do with that. So uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been, it's been right. good. It's been good well, to get to know a little bit more about you. For those who are listening, when Josh asked me to do this, I said, you must be at the bottom of the barrel. If you <laughs> but I don't talk about myself very often. And it's nice to ask for somebody to ask questions that force me to talk about myself. But uh, anyway, thanks for what you do, Josh.
Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And for everybody who's listened, uh, subscribe. We got a lot more fun stuff coming up. We've, in addition to Ned Telford, we've had WWE wrestlers and we've had, you know, therapists and all sorts of different people. So, so keep on listening. We appreciate it, and we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>